Well, good morning. I am Bill. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning we are starting a new psalm series for the summer. So each Sunday in the summer for our sermons, we're going to take a particular psalm. And no surprise, it seemed like the logical place to start was Psalm 1. So before we jump into the text, let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you this morning with your word before us. Teach us by the work of your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our minds and our hearts that we may understand and by understanding see you work in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would do it, and we pray it in Jesus' wonderful holy name. Amen. So for about six months, ending just recently, if you'd gone up to New York City and gone up to the Upper West Side, there were banners everywhere for the opening of the New York Historical Society's exhibit titled, Turn Every Page. It's the first exhibition of the archive of one of America's preeminent biographers, by the name, a man by the name of Robert Cairo. Now, some of you may know Cairo's work, many of you may not. Um, you may have heard of him because he won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of a man named Robert Moses that explains how much, even today, New York works the way it does and doesn't work sometimes the way it does. Um, that tome, my paperback version, comes in at 1,344 pages and 3.55 pounds, and it is worth every page. Now, after he finished that, Cairo's project since then has been a massive five-volume biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ. The fifth is still to come. It's an exhaustive look at LBJ start to finish, and my copies of volumes one through four stack up to 6.25 inches and 3,552 pages. So as you can see, what has made Caro a bit of a legend in the sort of academic biography community is that he is thorough. It takes a decade plus for each volume to come out, and the title of the exhibition says it all, Turn Every Page, which is in fact his motto. Robert Cairo gives us an exhaustive and incredibly illuminating look in examination of any life on which he turns his lens. Let me just ask them this question. If an excellent biographer like Robert Cairo spends that much time examining his subjects' lives, how much time do we spend examining our own? I mean, no one has a greater self-interest in how our lives go than we ourselves. Yet most people live an unconsidered, unexamined life just doing what everybody else does. And here's the point this morning. Psalm 1 calls us to examine our lives in light of the truest truths of the world so we could become steadfast and flourishing people. Psalm 1 calls us to examine our lives in light of the truest truths of the world so we could become steadfast and flourishing people. And so we'll examine this psalm and let it examine us this morning under three headings, a choice, a chance, and a change. A choice, a chance, and a change. Let's start with the choice. Now, if you've closed your Bible, please open back up to Psalm 1 and take a look at it. 
You'll notice right off the bat that Psalm 1 seems to divide pretty clearly into two halves. Verses 1 to 3 about the way of the righteous, and then verses 4 to 6 about the way of the wicked. Now, by the way, I don't mean that you all are righteous and you all are wicked. Don't overdo the body language here. But um, pretty much everything in this psalm is setting up this fundamental contrast, this idea that there are, at the end of the day, two ways to live. Two ways to live with a fundamental opposition between them. So verses 1 through 3 start this psalm, but not just this psalm, the entire book of psalms, what we call the Psalter, with the way of the righteous. And what the way of the righteous does is it keeps us off slippery ground. So notice the progression in verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's as if someone in motion grinds slowly to a halt, a halt in exactly the wrong place to be. A scoffer wears on people. It's not long if you are around somebody who's always scoffing at things or people that you just don't want to be there. You get sick of it. You don't want to be around that person. You don't want to be that person. And yet so many people are that person. How does that happen? Well, it happens because you don't start there. Look at the progression of the verse. It starts in motion, then slows to a stop, and then takes a seat. The dallying at the start of the verse, I'll just walk along with this for a little ways, slows to a sedentary stop and stand, then a sinful sit, the whole thing a slippery ground towards becoming exactly what we don't want to be. But then look at verse 3. Verse 3 gives the opposite, the picture. Not a slippery slope into sedentary sin, but a flourishing tree, steadfast and immovable, stretching up and out, a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Y'all, this psalm isn't subtle. What would you rather be, a grating scoffer sitting in sin and lethargy, or a big, flourishing tree, fruitful and delightful? Of course you'd rather be the tree, right? Don't you want to flourish? I do. Don't you want to live a life of blessedness? Of course we do. What's the secret to the latter? It's in the intervening verse. It's in verse 2. But his delight is on the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. What the righteous one in the psalm has is a north star, a a norm, a, a guide outside himself or herself. The righteous has a goal and a standard and a direction. It has a gift from God, an understanding of what life ought to be. Now, contrary to that, you get the second path, verses four to six, the way of the wicked. Verse 4 says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, in a psalm written to an agricultural people, that makes a whole lot more punch and impact than it does to you and me living in Maryland, D.C., or Northern Virginia. So let's unpack that. When wheat or grains are harvested, there's the kernel, the part that's actually nourishing and good for you. And then there's a wispy, thin, grassy part around it, what you see waving in the amber waves of grain. And so a farmer has to separate the two. 
And during the harvest season in Israel, the weather is the exact same thing every day. In afternoon, the sea breeze starts to blow in, and farmers even today use that breeze to separate the kernel and the chaff. The chaff has basically no weight and no resistance, so farmers simply throw the grain up in the air, the heavier kernels fall back down, and the chaff just blows away and disperses into nothing. Even today, you could go to Israel, you could stand up on a hill, and you can see little tufts coming off all the other hills as farmers separate the wheat and the chaff. And verse 4 then says this, do you want to be a person of weight and substance or a person of flightiness and nothing? And verses 5 and 6 make it clear to us that this psalm is developing this contrast to put before us not just a temporal choice, but an eternal choice. In the worldview of the psalmist, there's not only this life, but there's a judgment to come, one in which some, the grain, the steadfast tree will stand, and others, the chaff, will be blown away. So there are two paths. But here, don't let the imagery fool you. Both paths look really good right now. In fact, Chaff is a really fun place to be. It's a really attractive place to be. In fact, we hear good and bad and go, oh, I'm supposed to pick one or the other. But when we face it ourselves, we honestly, the three things of verse one sound kind of fun much of the time. We want to do them. I mean, if I'm honest, I want to be chaff lots of time. It does grow, and in fact, it grows quickly. It flourishes at first. And it's easier, more comfortable. In fact, a tree grows much more slowly. The kernel of wheat matures far after the chaff that's around it. It's actually easy to be chaff without knowing it. All we have to do is live an unexamined life. And being chaff can mean prosperity now. It even sometimes seems more attractive. It's certainly easier. But only one of them has long-term, much less eternal value. The other just blows away and disintegrates into nothing. And that highlights our second point this morning, a chance. By highlighting this opposition, the psalm gives you and me a chance. It gives us a chance to examine ourselves. Because what we believe about where we're going, what we're becoming, changes everything about how we are right now. Think, for example, if you have a high school senior who's planning to go to either the Naval Academy at Annapolis or to West Point or to the Air Force Academy in Colorado, where he or she is going is going to force all sorts of decisions about life right now, about fitness, about grades, about behavior, because if those things aren't in order, the stay at the military academies is going to be a very, very short stay. What we think we're heading, where we're going, changes the life we have right now. And this starts to highlight Psalm 1's unique function in its placement in our Bibles. The Psalter, this collection of all the Psalms, is itself, you may or may not know, divided into five books. If you were to page your way through, you're going to find book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And many of the rabbis parallel this division of the Psalter into five books with the five books of what we call the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law. And if you study the Psalms, 
you'll find that there are different types of psalms, different genres we call them, laments, hymns, expressions of confidence, etc. One type of psalm, relatively uncommon, is that that's called a wisdom psalm, a psalm, in fact, like Psalm 1, that concentrates on a life lived well, a life of wisdom. So wisdom psalms are relatively rare, yet here's one right at the beginning, starting off the entire book of Psalms. Why is it put here? Well, it's placed here as an invitation. An invitation to find wisdom in letting both the Torah, God's law, and the Psalter, by extension then all of the Bible, to examine us. Where is wisdom for a good life to be found? It's to be found in God's law, his Torah, and in the Psalter, the poems that follow. So this psalm invites you and me to examine, to live a life of self-reflection, not in some general sense, but in specific, a life in light of God and his word. Now, how would we do that? Well, in thinking about the chance, the chance to examine ourselves, there are two questions. What and who? Let's start with the what. When we're looking and examining ourselves, we have to say, well, what's the standard? I mean, students, how many tests have you taken in life? You've taken exams all the time. You can get examined on anything, and every one of those has a standard, what it takes to pass. And it's not just academics, right? I mean, I could examine myself against my non-existent vertical leap. Are you ready? It just, just happened. It would be a very quick exam. You can examine yourself against academics, against grades, against popularity, or bank accounts, or prestige, but none of those are what Psalm, two, Psalm 1 encourages. Look at verse 2 again. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The question is simply, will we choose to let God's word, the Bible, examine us to poke deeply into our lives? For example, Will Smith, long before the slap heard around the internet, wrote something remarkably self-reflective about, his, about himself in his memoir. So he's writing about Trey, his son from his first marriage. He says this, he says, I loved how Trey took to the Bible. He has one of the purest hearts of any human I've ever met. I was excited to discuss Abraham and Isaac to debate the righteousness of David and what the story of Lazarus really meant. I was wide open to ponder the life of Christ in the spiritual context, and the historical, even the mythological, if my mind could handle it. What I was neither prepared nor had the will to do was to debate the scriptural inadequacies of my life decisions. I worship God, I said. Are you sure, Trey said? So here's the deal. Your Bible is brand new with pages that haven't even looked at yet. Mine is tattered and worn with no page unturned. So why don't you rough up your Bible a little bit? Then we can have this conversation in a few years. And Smith is still writing. He says, I brushed off his question, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. I do interviews for a living. 35 years of questions in 50-something languages. And the number one greatest question I have ever been asked was, what do you worship? And the second greatest question is, are you sure? 
Will Smith was challenged by his son to examine his life against the Bible, not to just talk theology or doctrine or apologetics, but to dig, even though he admits he doesn't want to. And you see, the truth is, verse 5, will all be examined. Verse 5 makes it clear there will be a judgment. There will be a final exam on life, so to speak. At the end of the day, human beings are moral actors responsible for our choices. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And you know, scholars sometimes debate about verse 5. Is this talking about the here and now, or is this talking about eternity? Now, it's certainly true that much more of Hebrew thought was focused on this world than we sometimes realize, but we should add, still with an expectation there about an eternity. So may I suggest that that whole scholarly debate, in fact, the answer is yes, it's a false dilemma. There are judgments in this world. And all in all, the wicked often do get found out. Even today, we don't celebrate wickedness, at least on average. But to be fair, verse 5 isn't always temporally true in the world you and I live in. There are times the wicked do stand in the assembly of the righteous. There are times wickedness is hidden and not perceived. Even worse, there are times wickedness is perceived and instead perverts justice and righteousness. The promise of verse 5, if it's only for this life, isn't always true. But it's not solely a promise for this life. Look at verse 6. Humans may not always know, but even if we don't, God knows. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In other words, whether in this life, the life to come, or both, we will be examined. Now, it's quite possible if you're here, particularly from a non-Christian perspective this morning, you hear all that and you say, that just sounds like a means of social control. That's what the priests did thousands of years ago. It's what the pastors still do. I remember what my anthropology professor taught me here, and that's just all a big bunch of hogwash. Well, it could be. I mean, I suppose it could be, but you're making a very big bet if you dismiss this by saying that. Maybe let me just ask this question, if that had been your reaction. Why is there a somewhat universal human instinct for justice and fairness? If you treat two kids differently, what does the one who got the less good deal look at you and say? She says, that wasn't fair. And when you see the horrible things of this world that it has, we want what? We want justice. We want a world that's fair and right pretty much universally. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because there is an eternal justice back there. And even if human beings' knowledge of that is somewhat dulled, the truest truths of God's world are still there, still imprinted even if dimly on most of our hearts. Because realize, if we are just a cosmic accident, then morality, it wouldn't even really exist as a concept. The word fair would have no meaning. But instead, there universally is this human instinct for justice because it reflects the deeper, truer truths of the world that there is such a thing as a just judgment at the end. Now, here's what happens when Torah, when God's law examines us. We fail. I mean, we fail. 
When the standard is an expression of God's perfect righteousness, a laying out of the truly right way to live before God and man, none of us can pass. Every one of us has plenty of shames, regrets, concerns, things that we would not want out there if we admitted them. If they came to light, we'd be gutted. So in the chance to examine ourselves, the first of the two questions is what? And it's examine ourselves by God's word. The second then question has to be this, who? Who does the examining? Now we can examine ourselves, of course, and we should, but here's what usually happens when we examine ourselves. We let ourselves off. You may say, for instance, you know, nope, I just took account of everything while you're talking right now, and I'm pretty sure I'm actually a pretty good person. I went through it all, I did the self-examination, and I passed with flying colors. This world is pretty lucky to have me. Well, no offense, but I kind of doubt it, <laughs> right? It's possible, but what that probably means is that your self-examination has been chaff-like, shallow. Here's what happens. We do want there to be morality, but we want to be the judge of it. Which means here's what happens, we complain when somebody else does us wrong, but then we excuse ourselves when we do somebody else wrong. Because in the end, when we fall short, what we actually want is a one-sided morality that holds them, binds them, and lets ourselves off. Because that lets us just do what we want. In contrast to that, let me read you another piece, one that I think shows a remarkable degree of self-examination, somebody who doesn't let himself off at all. Here's what this person wrote some years back. I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that's not because I'm an especially good and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind. But I'm also a dude who believes in guardrails, as a buddy of mine once put it. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I'm having a second drink and why I am not. Why I'm going to a party and why I'm not. I believe the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I am not a good man, but I'm prepared to be an honorable one. Now, if you're wondering who that is, by the way, it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, one of America's most influential progressive atheists. And that's exceptionally admirable. And while I certainly don't agree with his progressive atheism, I admire what he's saying here deeply. Though I disagree with him in many areas, there's much about Coates here that I admire, and we should. But here's the thing. Biblically, even that's not enough. You see, even then, that standard is behavioral. Did I do it or not? And, and please make no mistake, being an honorable man or woman is much better than being a dishonorable man or woman. But the Bible's standard is so much more than just how we act. It's, it's not simply behavior, it's more. One of our elders likes to remind us that to do right is to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. It's not simply the thing alone, it's also the method, and maybe most provocatively, the reasons, the why. 
Jesus goes so far to say, it's not how you act, it's your heart. You may well know the well-quoted passages from the Sermon in the Mount in Matthew 5. Our Lord says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus goes on, he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All of our lives, everyone will be examined when Jesus returns but on a standard that even being an honorable man, though better than dishonorable for sure, it's not enough. But what if I offered you something even better than that? What if I offered you a changed heart? What if I told you that all those shames and regrets could be wiped away? You wouldn't believe me, would you? Instead, you'd say with Lady Macbeth, out, out, damn spot, because these things seem so indelible. But you see, if you're in Christ, here's what happens when God examines you. When God examines you, if you follow Jesus, he gives this ridiculously unbelievable comment. He looks you over, he looks into your heart and into your life and into your motives and he says, looks perfect. Looks perfect. How could that be? Unless you're in utter denial, you and I both know that that's not true. But I mean, think about how Paul deals with this in Romans 7. If you've got your Bible open still, flip over to Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Paul writes this. He says, For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know exactly what Paul's talking about. He says, why is it that I know what I should do, but I don't do it? And I know what I shouldn't do, but I do do that. Why am I this total mess that just seems to keep happening that way? In any real self-examination, we would have to conclude with Paul that we still fail the test. And yet God does utter this. He looks at you and says, perfect. Why and how? Because it turns out that you can have someone else take over your examination. You can have a substitute. You can trade grades, not just with the smartest kid in the class, but with the one, the only one who ever really has been perfect. Jesus is all that. You see, Jesus did not walk in wicked ways or stand in sinful ways or sit in scoffing ways. He was kind and gentle yet strong. He lived a life that was continually delighting in the law of God. And he had the words of scripture on his heart and mind and tongue night and day. Jesus is the righteous man. He is the tree planted and flourishing. The one for whom nothing he does withers, always full of fruit. Jesus is all that. But he gives it to you and me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes an amazing and audacious statement. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
See, here's the thing. When we're all examined and we fail as we surely do, there's a cost to that. The failure is sin, and sin has a penalty, and no human being can pay for your or my penalty because we each have our own sin to deal with, except one. Jesus, God incarnate, came to live the perfect life you and I should have lived, and in so doing, he passed the test. He passed the examination perfect. God the Father declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. But that same Jesus ended up on a cross, crucified, bearing the weight of sin for you and me so that you and I who deserve to be on that cross are spared. Not just spared, but given his perfect righteousness. And therefore, if we are found in him, the examination at the end looks entirely different. Because the ultimate who is who is doing the examining and what's that person's attitude towards us. So Paul, having written that in Romans 7, went on in chapter 8, he says, who could condemn us? Who has the right to? Well, only Jesus, who has lived a perfect life. But verse 34, he says, Jesus is the very one who will not condemn us, but instead chose to die for us. The one who right now is for us. And this is the good news. You can have a righteousness that surpasses even an amazingly self-disciplined man like ta Coates. But that righteousness will have to be given to you. You'll never, ever merit it on your own. But here's the really neat thing, and it gets us briefly to our last point. That enables a change. When we're examined by Jesus, it means we can see our lives changed right now. Jesus gives us his positional righteousness, his being right with God when we come to him, but he also starts to do something in us to make us different people. He starts to form us, to shape us, to grow us. He makes us new, not just someday, but right now. In another letter, in Colossians, Paul writes that we are being conformed more and more into the image of Christ our Savior. In other words, our lives start to become different. We stop being chaff, and we start actually becoming the wheat. We start growing into the righteous tree. Even though we struggle, we do really start to become different. One more time, back to Romans 7. Don't miss what Paul says at the end of that section. After agonizing about how it doesn't feel like he's changing that much, Paul says, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we're declared righteous, Jesus also starts to make us righteous. He starts to make us what we could be, what we should be, what we will be. He starts to make us into what fits us. Remember, the psalm says there are two ways to live, but they're not equal. One is what's really good for us and good for our world and our society. The other looks more fun. It seems easier, and we're apt to pursue it. But down that road is utterly and ultimately deception and destruction. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why does God give us a law? Why does he tell us what we should do and shouldn't do? Is he just a great big killjoy? I mean, it can seem like that sometimes, doesn't it? Because honestly, you know what? I'm apt to love the wrong things. 
I don't just like being chaff. I love it. I think it's what I'm made to be. I think that's being my most authentic self, but the psalm says it's not. You were made for more. God does call some things right and other things wrong, and when he does that, it's because he wants what's good for us. He doesn't want us to be people of nothingness, blown about by the cultural and emotional winds that would scatter us if we're chaff. He doesn't want us to be people of scoffing and mocking, leaving a relationally devastating trail with others. He wants us to be flourishing and fruitful people. How does that start to happen? Well, it's that contrast of verse two one more time, that God's word becomes our delight, that we've got our minds set on it day and night. And when we start engaging God's word more and more, he makes us new and makes us different. He grows us into a flourishing tree. We become humble enough to be changed. Here's how it happens. You see, if you know in your heart that you yourself are playing for eternity, if you know that everything rides on you having been good enough, whether you do that in a non-religious sense or a religious sense, either way, what it means is you start going back to that game of trying to justify yourself trying to hide from the truth, trying to show you really have been good enough, deserving of eternity, even though in fact it never could be true. But once you know that eternity has already been secured for you, not by your own righteousness, but by another's, well, there's unbelievable freedom. Suddenly we have the freedom to admit when we messed up. We can show our flaws. We can avoid having to double down on increasingly indefensible things we said in public because we'll never retract. We could admit that maybe we voted wrong, whichever side we voted on. We could admit we blew it, morally, relationally, whatever. We might even develop the humility to be willing to change our minds. You see, once we realize that eternity has already been bought for us, there's a freedom that the now doesn't matter as much So we can admit we're a mess. We can admit we're sinners. We can admit that we have to reconsider. We can start to re-examine our own lives right now. And when we do, God loves us enough to show us things we might not have wanted to see. (laughs) To show us things we might still not want to see, but that we need to see. And we can humbly see those things and start to let him change us because we no longer need to defend ourselves and our self-image. I got to tell you, when that happens, you become a much nicer person to be around, a much nicer friend, a person who starts to be changed and transformed to grow. You become like that growing, stretching tree, a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season with leaves that never wither. In other words, the freedom that comes with eternity having already been established by Jesus frees us to become what we always ought to be now. It opens up to be different people, the people we always ought to be. It frees us up to examine both our hopes and our lives and to do so in light of what God shows us is true flourishing. So to close it up, if you are a non-Christian here this morning, let me simply ask you this one question, encourage you this, examine your hope. I mean, truth be told, there is something like verse two for you. Something that you think is life, something you just can't stop thinking about day and night. What is it? 
Ask yourself what you're chasing and then say, if I even got that, would it really make life work? Would it actually make eternity secure? Will it? Often when we really examine ourselves, we realize that what we're chasing won't ever work. Now, if you do follow Christ this morning, realize you have already passed the most important exam ever, and God is for you. Well, if so, we are free to live with an honesty and a humility and a patience and a kindness, with a confession and a repentance, with no need to defend ourselves. It's a style of living that could be the most countercultural thing we would ever, ever do. And there's a very specific step to get there. Spend time in your Bible. Do it every day. Rough up the pages, as Trey Smith said. Read it, and don't just read it, but let it examine you. Let God's Holy Spirit work through the text to open you up to be a different person. Where would you start? Well, maybe this summer, how about the book of Psalms? We're going to be preaching one each Sunday, but there are 150 of them. So consider taking one psalm each day and then reading it, and as you read it, asking God to change us as we do. Read the text and then say, God, show me where I'm chaff. Show me what it means to grow into a tree. Come back to the beginning. Um, I think I'm really glad my life won't be examined by Robert Cairo. He writes about people who have huge amounts of power, so I am remarkably safe from his pen. But I'm glad because I wouldn't want him publishing all my junk. And there's plenty of junk in all of us to publish. But when we're examined by Jesus, realize he sees all the junk, but he doesn't publish it. Instead, he takes it upon himself, cleansing us, making us new, and enabling us to step into a life that's an open book before him, to become new and to flourish. Let's pray we might be able to do that this summer. God, our Father, we pray and ask these things. We ask that you would make us new. That you would make us men and women who are humble, able to see where you might make us flourish, who don't defend ourselves, but who lean on your grace and have you bear us up. Would you do that in us and through us by the power of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.